It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Monday morning, the 25th of February. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. Fianna Falls Ordesh this weekend focused on how unusual the times we live in are. In normal times, Fianna Fáil delegates would have heard about how the party hoped to lead the country into prosperity and so on. In more recent times, Fianna Fáil chose to be responsible and facilitate a Fine Gael minority-led government. Today, the consensus is that this arrangement is not working. And while Fianna Fáil is desperately unhappy with the performance of government, and how it perceives it is being treated with disrespect by the government. It believes that it is in the national interest to continue with the confidence and supply agreement and keep the government in office. We're joined uh, this morning by Fianna Fáil TD for Mead West, Shane Castles. Good morning to you and thanks uh, for joining us here on the programme this morning. Uh, I think uh, there was a, a lot of uh, election talk at the weekend, possibly more off uh, stage away from uh, the podium where delegates were talking about when the next general election might be, uh, but uh, that wasn't uh, to be the case as we heard. It seems as though there won't be a, a general election, uh, certainly not because Fianna Fáil has called one until at least October, November of next year. Um, good morning, Michael, and good morning to all your listeners. Yeah, first of all, I'd say that we had a, a very good weekend. We had some 3,000 delegates at the City West for our 79th Ardesh. Uh There was a very good atmosphere uh, among ordinary rank-and-file members, elected members. Uh, you're right to say there was a lot of election talk uh, because in my own brief as local government spokesperson, um, I held sessions on Saturday afternoon with our local election uh, candidates and we have some 350 uh, in the field already and I met with them and spent the uh, Saturday afternoon holding a boot camp for them so there was plenty of talk mm. about elections in the context of a general election I, there was uh, a clear statement prior to Christmas mm. saying that Fianna Fáil wouldn't cause a general election during 2019 because of the ongoing uh, crisis in the UK and which mm. we see this morning because, uh, is, uh, uh, is, is, is as bad as ever. A, a lot of people seem to think that that might change after the 29th of March. Well as Michal Martin said in his speech on Saturday night mm. and in the media interviews he gave over the weekend, Fianna Fáil are not going to cause an election this year, given the fact that if you have an election, you have a one-month mm. campaign. If, if an election had been caused last week in the Dáil, you would have an immediate one-month campaign, mm. followed by possibly three months of uh, government negotiations. Mm. We're at the anniversary this uh, tomorrow, actually. Mm. It was polling day three years ago tomorrow. And we saw after that, and I remember being in here with you, 
and the mantra at the time was why can't you guys get on get on with it former government former national parliament in the the interest of the country and ever since that point the mantra Mm. has been when is it being pulled down and I don't want to see this country fall into the same kind of um, you know, uh, mantra and uh, narrative that's tearing the UK apart at the moment. We saw the polls yesterday in the Red Sea poll. The people of the country are more interested in making sure mm. that we have a stable government at a time when Ireland's interests need to be protected because I think if you did have a scenario where this country was thrown into chaos, it's suiting peop- certain people's agendas, both domestically here but also internationally because I think, quite frankly, it would suit the Brits if there was chaos here, there's mm. enough chaos over there without them spreading the chaos over well, here as well. Well, it seems though there won't be any chaos uh, for 21 months. Uh, the uh, Brexit uh, position seems to be changing and t- a delay in extension now seems to be order of the day. So will Fianna Fáil be spectators and continue because you're a party of spectators at the moment, if not a mudguard for the Fine Gael administration. Uh, will you continue to be spectators for 21 months? I think the next... Uh, three weeks are obviously, next five weeks are obviously crucial in terms of whether there is actually a resolution before the end of March or whether there is going to be a request and then a defined period mm. in terms of an extension. If that is the case, you can take it that all bets would be off. There, you know, there's nobody within Fianna Fáil um, who is happy with the situation. What is happening mm. is a situation whereby the interests of the country are being put forth in terms of the, no. in terms of the mm. facilitation of, of a parliament. In terms of the fact that we have um, an arrangement of confidence and supply mm. that we said we will not force an election this year. Mm. And we will not. Mm. But we have seen plenty of jibing and trying to um, get back Fianna Fáil into a corner to, to have mm. that. Uh, you know, w- members, of course, are anxious to see a removal of government ourselves as parliamentarians uh, members of the Oireachtas of the Fianna Fáil Parliamentary Party are anxious to see the removal mm. of this government and I can tell you that ch- opportunity will come soon enough in hope probably the, the spring of next year when that's anticipated and people both the electorate and the Fianna Fáil members will get their chance to hopefully put a Fianna Fáil government into power at that time. Would that not be too close to Brexit? Again, Michael, we're trying to preempt everything that's going to happen in the context of yeah. uh, the next five weeks and mm. having an actual resolution. And I think what you see, as you rightly well, call it, a, 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 a game of chicken mm. by virtue of the fact that it's my own, mm. my belief that Theresa May thinks that the EU is going to blink prior to uh, the end of March. Um, I don't think that is going to be the case. I sincerely hope from our own point of view that is not going to be the case and I don't believe it will be. And I then think you're going to link into a, a period of extension. Very much so, you could see, you, all, when I say all bets are off, you just don't know then what's going to happen after that domestically uh, from the point of view. Obviously, we have a local mm. election and a European election in around, a, a around 90 days' time. A commitment to the next and, budget. Yes, indeed. And will that commitment be fulfilled? Yes, indeed. Because Regardless. We, well, I, I, we can't be any more clear than say mm. We, we gave a commitment to the next budget. There's plenty of people trying to cut at our heels mm. and force an election, which if the, the Red Sea poll showed yesterday, uh, the people of this country uh, firmly believe that they want a parliament in place to actually make sure that we have a present government mm. in situ to deal with the well, negotiations. Well, they showed that they didn't want Fianna Fáil to lead the next government, that's for sure. Well, <coughs> uh, and many people would believe that that's why Fianna Fáil don't want an election. Leo Vradker said as much himself on Friday yeah. night. There was, a poll, there was a poll before the last general election as well, a week mm. out, that showed us getting nowhere near the 45 seats that we came back mm-hmm. with. And I believe that we're going to poll uh, even better come the next general election 
hold the 45 we have increase and be in a position to form the next government. Mm-hmm. Is there a sting in the tail? I wonder if Fianna Fáil was 5 to 10% ahead in the polls for the last year, would they be so willing to facilitate us? Time will tell, the Taoiseach said. Yeah, he can be an awful childish with some of the remarks he's throwing around. He's throwing remarks he's around. Taoiseach. He's throwing, he's, well, he's everybody's Taoiseach, yeah. Michael. He's mm. everybody's Taoiseach. Yeah. That's, but that's, the, the law confirms that on of him. Course, okay? but that, that, in, terms of, uh, um, in terms of my position, I have one leader, and that man is Michal Martin and we want to make him the next Taoiseach and I tell you the speech he gave on Saturday night brought the house down as well he showed statesman like sure, he, he showed statesman like sure, performance what did he say he showed statesman like performance uh, no sorry can't go for an election because uh, of this Brexit thing and the government are terrible yeah. what vision did he bring to Fianna Fáil I think he showed a lot more eloquence than, than that Michael but the man is showing himself to be a statesman when he is constantly mm. under attack as well by the likes of the Taoiseach trying to jibe him maybe Leo wants mm. an election it, it probably looks like that more so than anything. Well, what does maybe Le- fall stand for? Maybe, maybe Leo wants to go mm. uh, to the country mm. now. I can tell you if Leo wants to force an election and, and plunge the country into chaos, well on Leo's head be it. Mm. We have said that we are not going to have the country turn into chaos at a time when it, there does need to be a permanent okay. government in mm. situ dealing with the negotiations and we're looking forward to the next election we're going to fight is going to be the local elections where, mm. the, where, they, where they, we are the main party across this country with the num- greatest number of seats and as local government spokesperson mm. I want to see Fianna Fáil increase our numbers. I, I'm, I'm sure you're right Shane Castles. Micheál Martin undoubtedly was far more mm. eloquent than I was a, a moment ago but what was he saying? What I heard him say was, I'm sorry we can't go for a general election for whatever reason whether you believe the one I'm giving you or the one everybody else is saying uh, and second of all this is a, a terrible government uh, normally a leader's speech would define the vision of a political party uh, and indeed their vision for the country what was Michal Martin saying about Ireland? Okay and so at this particular time what he used the opportunity to uh, speak to the Irish people about was that very core issue of Brexit because it is dominating mm. every single and of course it's his opportunity where he can speak uninterrupted, unedited mm. uh, and clearly set out because, of course, everybody is watching. What did you ter- set out can I, just, can I just finish the point in terms of there are Fianna Fáil members who are mm. turning in going, we're angry. Why are we, why are we still in this situation? So mm. he was speaking to those members and he was also speaking to the people as well in terms of I suppose conveying to them, yes, we do have a very unusual parliament at the moment. Mm. And yes, we are facilitating the continuation of this parliament. And we are doing so because in normal times Mm. we would be gone. We would be gone because of the crisis in the healthcare system. We would be gone because of the crisis Mm. in the housing department. We would be gone in the crisis of Mm. multiple other departments as well. And we are are not going to collapse. Why didn't he tell us us what the solution to the health crisis was? Why didn't he tell us how he was going to solve the housing crisis? Where was his vision? What did he bring other than criticism of the government and a commitment to keep that government in office? And he, and we, by the way, if there was a plenty of media interest as well in terms of all of the various workshops that were ha- held all throughout Saturday where our various spokespersons addressed that in detail and they were covered as well. He was using his 20 odd five minutes to actually speak about the fact of the why mm. and, and trying to give people that certainty that we're not going to plunge the country into crisis. Mm. Do you believe that? I certainly do. Do you really? I, I do, yeah. yes. Mm, yeah, because uh, it is... I, I, I'm looking across at the, the newspaper yeah. articles that you have from Leo mm. trying to goad us into... Uh, and as Michal said, he says he's far too experienced a politician. 
uh, than Leo uh, to be goaded by Leo to try and, uh, mm. and and run to the country and force an election. Um, as I said, you know our members are ready for your, for an election. We mm. have our selection conventions done. We have our stuff ready. You know Leo likes to tweet posters, tweet pictures of his posters yeah. with his tie wraps. We have. But all you shouldn't do anything ready. about Simon Harris, and you're telling us that if a similar incident uh, occurs in the course of uh, the next year or so, you'll be doing nothing. You're not uh, anticipating going to the polls until the spring of next but let's, year. But let's let's play that scenario out, uh, Michael, because it's of course. It's 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 a it's a it's a it's a, a valid charge. You say you didn't do anything about Simon mm. Harris. You could have voted against um, the the motion, or could have voted with the motion of mm. no confidence in Simon Harris. And you know that immediately triggers an election because it's a breach mm. of the agreement that was agreed. But that means that this morning, agreement, that, that means that this morning we would be in here, and you would have several candidates oh, around didn't, didn't, this country or down around this table, did and would be in not breach the agreement. I believe they did actually. Yes. Yeah. Mm. And I mean, if Fine Gael want to pull no down, no surprises. If Fine Gael want to pull down um, the the government and plunge us into mm. chaos, and as I said, I think there's half so, there's, there's half in England that that's what they want because they thought so. Fine Gael can, can breach the agreement and there's no consequence. They thought, that makes you the mudguard of the government, doesn't it? They were going to be on a far better mm. poll rating. They're getting hit bad now with the debacle of the children's hospital mm. as well as every other scandal, and they're now actually and they're in government and that'll blow over. Well, I don't believe it will. I believe that people do actually have, uh, will make a judgment call on their managing, not mm. just in the healthcare system, uh, but other aspects as well, in terms of their inability to, dra- to grapple with the housing crisis in this country as well, and that people will make a judgment on them. Okay, you were talking about uh, the other elections in May, the local and the European uh, elections, and Billy Gallagher's uh, bid to take a, a seat in Europe. Uh, did that come as a, a surprise uh, to Michal Martin? Uh, has uh, he been told where to go, in other words? And uh, is isn't it odd uh, that Billy Keller is one of the men running for Fianna Fáil? There's no women running for Fianna Fáil, are there? Uh, well, no, Anne Rabbit actually announced on uh, Friday night, Michael, mm, our that she'd like to, yes. in Galway, that she's mm. going to contest mm. uh, the European uh, Parliamentary Convention, which mm. is, would be actually in this particular area. So I hope Anne will be in here with, with you discussing the issues. Um, Billy has long said that he wanted to stand uh, for the European mm. Parliament. Um, he certainly uh, put that out front and centre mm. on Saturday, where he had a numerous amount of his election posters as well. Yep. I mean, the, elect- the convention is on in Munster, mm. so he was using his opportunity to try and mm. win votes among the Munster delegates on the day, and that's what you do. In and the, Michal in the Martin has conceded. We have actually four candidates running in the Munster election, and so um, one of them happens to be Michael McGrath's brother, Seamus, and uh, it's going to be a, a fiercely, hotly contested election. Mm-hmm. But Michal Martin conceded, didn't he? Uh, and uh, there is no, well, the unlike, unlike ongoing other, prospect that there may not be a, a female candidate. Unlike other parties, where they actually just pick the candidate in a, in a smoke-filled room in yeah, another part of the yeah. country, we actually do have conventions. And so the nomination papers went out last week and Billy Kelleher would have been uh, properly nominated at that time. And so we, we have, uh, I mean, we're hardly going to go back and actually change our constitution of our party and deny people the right to actually go. Mm. Uh, we actually encourage elections, we actually encourage competition among our members because that drives on our membership base and it's going to be, I tell you what, it's going to be hotly contested down in Munster. Uh, do you think that uh, Leo Vradker is as powerful uh, Taoiseach as any uh, that came before him given uh, the fact that there is no challenge to his leadership? No, I mean, look, at I mean, I don't want to see the man as Taoiseach because I want to make Michal Martin yeah. Taoiseach. But at the same time, I'm also respectful of the office of, t- office of Taoiseach. I know, and we, but and we you're need to make also sure. saying you'll keep him as Taoiseach no matter what. No, we, we said... 
that we had for the continuance of this year a situation where we wouldn't collapse no the matter government. What? We wouldn't collapse the government. We wouldn't breach the confidence supply. If the, if the Fine Gael government want to pull the country into the chaos well, of what's no happening what. across the water... You've said Fine Gael breached the confidence and supply. Yeah, they breached it. Yeah. And if they want a situation... They can where, do whatever where, they want. And then they'll be judged by the people. Mm. We're not going to plunge. It's so easy for us to probably walk away but we mm. don't want a situation where we're being and we are being constantly going you know, and it's not easy Michael I, I don't you know, know. I, I, maybe it's just me but may, I do think that people listening to us this morning hear you talking about Fine Gael muddy boots on a, a Fianna Fáil doormat Look, there, if you want to use that phraseology that's fine we are providing the kind of responsible opposition and the strong opposition that is required we are not going to breach a situation whereby tomorrow morning we're all out in a general election five weeks out from the most defining thing of not most my generation mm. but my kids' generation as well and I can tell you the narrative would be a whole lot different if we went into the doll tomorrow collapsed the, uh, the parliament hmm. and then Wednesday you'd be in here kicking me off all four walls going Shane Castles look <laughs> at the crisis that. this country is in yeah. and you guys mm-hmm. caused it yeah. and we could play back the yeah. tape from well, today and that's the reality and yeah. you know it and I yeah, know no, it but in five weeks from now no matter what uh, you're going to continue and, th- and that is the but point but five weeks from now we don't know what the situation mm. is going to play exactly. out we see Theresa yeah. May kicking mm. it down the road for yeah. another two weeks because yeah. she's playing yeah. chicken with mm-hmm. the EU mm-hmm. we don't know what's going to happen come the 29th mm-hmm. of March to give the country some kind of stability mm-hmm. in business people in private households well, we three, said we wouldn't three, collapse three this senior year. British ministers have talked about an extension mm-hmm. there is talk of a, an extension of 21 months now yeah. uh, so it, it seems quite possible that this is and I think that does change the dynamic Michael there's no mm-hmm. two ways about it but we're not going to play we're not going to play chicken uh, with the lives and the future of our people I've mm-hmm. never met a more irresponsible crowd than the crowd across the water in that parliament mm-hmm. it's absolutely mm-hmm. I met with some of them during the week at a meeting that I was at and, and, and in fairness a lot of the Labour representatives I met said they can't believe what's going on in their own country okay. it is not easy what we're going through at the moment I can tell you as a first time TD it's not easy but I'll tell you what we're going to hold our nerve we're going to show a lot of backbone and a bit of neck that maybe some of the Blues don't have and we're going to give the country stability and come the next general election we're going to give the country a proper government as well Okay, the Blues, that's Fine Gael, is it? I think you know it is. <laughs> right, thanks for coming in to us this morning. Fianna Fáil TD for Mead West, Shane Castles. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Now, Labour Party councillor in Drogheda, Paul Bell, is uh, back into us uh, today to talk about uh, the Thatch Cottage in uh, the town. The last time we were here, we were talking about raising money for it and uh, getting it restored and so on. Today, we're talking about an attempt to destroy it after a lot of work went into it, a lot of time and money went into restoring what is really... Uh, fantastic thing for the town to yes. have uh, but what was it 20 past 6 on Saturday morning someone set fire to it? Yeah we we'll just go back a bit you're, you're quite mm. right Michael it was a five year campaign uh, for the Thatch pub as we know it the old Thatch pub uh, to have its roof restored and the thatching restored uh, and it took a lot of effort both with the property owner mm. myself Loud County Council to eventually get grants from the state that would assist this work to be um Undertaken, and in fact, so bad was it is actually was discovered that the actual roof structure and the walls also had to be uh, reinforced and reconstructed at that mm. time. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, uh, the work was done. It's you know the figure is around forty four thousand to fifty thousand euros over that period, and everybody appreciated the mm. work when it was completed because they felt that the building had gone well by yeah. its sell by date. Uh, so the master Thatcher, uh, Peter Childs, a local man, uh, had completed the walks with his team. 
everybody was appreciating it. There's a bit more work to be done. Uh, and at about um, 7 o'clock on Saturday morning, I received a phone call from the media hmm. advising that this incident was ongoing, uh, that uh, a local fire service, uh, who I must say saved the day, were on scene hmm. trying to basically put out a very serious fire on the roof. And do we know how it started? Well, <clears throat> I'm conscious, Michael, that there's a guard investigation mm-hmm. ongoing. Uh, but my understanding is that the fire uh, was reported at around 6.30am mm. uh, in the morning. Uh, my understanding is that there is uh, some CCTV evidence that will assist the Gardaí in their investigations. Uh, and my understanding is that uh, there was one or two individuals present uh, when this fire started. Mm. Um, but do you know how they said about what what we do lighting know, the no, thatch because it doesn't as I understand yeah. it it's not that easy to set on fires not as easy as you might assume anyway absolutely and this is something else mm. too which is a, the point is quite well made by yourself Michael uh, what is required as I understand it to actually start a fire with that type of material is an accelerant mm. of some description petrol or something yeah yeah and the issue here is is that it's understood that the fire started quite close to the door there was a fairly brisk breeze. Uh, that morning and the surface of the roof mm. as you can see from the photographs that have been supplied by uh, Jimmy Weldon uh, that the uh, the surface of the roof went on fire the fire service managed to get that off so that the fire would not go into the actual structure um, I believe that um, the incident was a deliberate act mm-hmm. uh, I have no evidence of that but I believe it was a deliberate act because at the end of the day these structures just don't go on fire by accident you would recall that Hardy's Cottage, which is another project I'd walked on in Crushout Avenue, because there's only two cottages left, there was an attempt a number of months ago to also have that destroyed by fire. And due to the vigilance of local people, uh, and actually members of the taxi community, that was brought under control very quickly by mm. the fire service. Uh, I think what's quite devastating for the owner, and I met the owner on Saturday morning, and the people living in the area, is it's, it's very hard to rationale that type of act. Mm. Uh, the people of Drogheda want these two buildings kept. They want them uh, kept in good order. They are expensive to keep. Yeah. Uh, and obviously, we talk about Flag Kyoel and the Heron being in the town, and mm. these are the mm-hmm. couple of things, yeah. a couple of buildings that we would like to keep in order to show that yeah. actually yeah, well, ideal type of image, uh, like ideal type of image, yeah. especially mm-hmm. with the one on the No Road, mm. because that's a, on a gateway road. Yeah. My understanding is for, uh, is that the Guardian are investigating this matter, uh, that they may have some evidence to consider mm. uh, and I do really hope uh, judging by the devastation to the people in the area the property owner and those who love that type of heritage that the Guardi would be successful mm. in their investigations well, I mean never say never but my understanding of it is it's difficult uh, to set a attached roof on yeah. fire you have to go out of your way I yes. mean we all know that we've had them in the country for yeah. so long and many of them yes. have lasted many many years yes. uh, so uh, the likelihood is the kind of scenario that you're talking to us now about but what about uh, the property as it stands today you said uh, that uh, there was a, a layer of thatching that the fire service took off does that mean like the top layer that the rest yes. of the roof is okay yes when, when a thatched roof is, is constructed it's constructed in layers. Mm. Uh, the fire service have fairly good experience in understanding how to deal with a thatch fire because sometimes if it's not dealt with properly, the fire will actually get worse or the building will actually be destroyed. So there's a substantial patch on the building that has been destroyed. 
but the fire service would have removed the top layer of the thatching to try and make sure that the, the fire would not enter into the building, destroying the beams and the supporting structure of mm. that roof. Um, my understanding is that uh, all other parts of the building are secure, are safe, and have been saved. Uh, the rear of the building, my understanding also is that uh, the Thatcher, Peter Childs, so I mm. understand was not available over the weekend, has seen the images taken by the mm. owners of the property and believes that it can be restored to where it yeah, was. but that layer of thatching needs yeah. to be replaced. Absolutely. Obviously. Any um, idea of the cost? Uh, no, mm. but I will say this, it won't be cheap. Mm. And, and who might pay and for And this it? is where the other issue is because... You know, is it, it insured? Uh, I couldn't answer that question. Mm, of course. But I'm mm. sure that uh, the property owners will be having discussions about how is this going to be restored, uh, what kind of costs are involved, is there insurance and so forth. I'm, I'm sure those conversations are ongoing mm. because I'll be very honest with you, Michael, it is not going to be cheap uh, because that work was basically re- reconstructing mm. the whole building. It wasn't just doing a normal thatching. It wasn't mm. like the one on Harty's Cottage where it was a normal thatching. Uh, this building is not like that. Uh, you basically reconstructed the roof. You reconstructed the thatching. It can be done. It's being assessed today, as I understand it. Mm. Um, but it is going to be costly. And I have to say, I can't speculate. Mm. But I don't think there'll be much change out of €20,000. All right. And it may be covered by insurance. Even if it yeah. is, though, it may be difficult to get insurance going into the future. I mean, is somebody going to indemnify what they believe might be a target? Well, this is the other issue. And how do you stop these things from happening? Now, uh, again, I, I'd not be an expert mm. on how to prevent fires in these type of buildings. My understanding is that, that certain actions can be taken to try and stop fire from, from actually catching, which is basically fire retardant. Certain types of chemical are used on thatches, by the way, which may already been on that one, because if you see the damage that was done, remember, the fire service, I think, were alerted around 6.30am. They were on site within 10 minutes. Mm. Like, that's that was the difference between that building now being talked about this morning mm-hmm. as being restored and it being demolished. Idle minds, if ever. Oh well, mm. I think the, the interesting thing for mm. most people, and this is where the, the problem is when I was on site on, on Saturday morning, people just genuinely would like to know from the individuals mm. or individual responsible, why do you do that? Mm. Why do you destroy something like that? Why? What is it that you mm. need to get it's out of your system? It's a futile question. Though. Yeah, you but, know, like I mean, but wouldn't, you, mm. wouldn't, wouldn't the listeners and I and you, so Michael, like to hear the answer? Mm. This is a beautiful building. It's part of a heritage doing absolutely no harm on anybody mm. and then someone decides I know the, 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 the guardian may have different things to say about this matter someone decides well it's not for me and now it's going to be destroyed mm. I think that's a question that needs yeah, to be and they get a great forward. laugh out of how upset people are because yeah. of it and that type of thing and that gives them a sense of power or something like that Well, yeah. I, 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 again Michael mm. I'm not a psychologist but I yeah. would say this that there needs to be a number of questions posed mm. because even the one in Harty's Cottage mm. no one can understand well why would you do that mm. it was a wreck badness mm. well it's yeah. certainly not mm. good yeah uh, but I mean, is there any point in asking the question? Oh, I think there is. Yeah, is there, yeah uh, it's, yeah. it's something because what mm. you say, Michael, mm. you might. I, I think that one of the most abhorrent crimes in the world is arson. Mm. Because why? Because it's indiscriminate. Yeah. Mm. Uh, first of all, no one knew what was inside that building. Mm. Were there people in the building asleep? Were there animals in there? Were there chemicals in there? No one knows. But yet, a fire can have devastating effects. Mm. Uh, which, when it starts, it's it's out of control. It's a force of nature. Uh, but I do have to say that the 
the determination of the community is for that building to be restored. Uh, they care about the building in the area, people living in, in Cedarfield, mm. on the Denor Road, people who visit the area. Uh, and I do know that the owners also have other work to do. They wanted to bring the building up to more spe- mm. uh, more of a higher spec, mm. like whitewashing and all this work that had to be done. Yeah, I'm, maybe, I'm maybe, maybe it will be protected. Maybe the court uh, should look to get those questions asked and answered of yeah. individuals if they're convicted of this type of yeah. thing. Uh, I don't know. but I, uh, I would appeal, though, Michael, mm. to people uh, who were in the area mm. on that morning, because as I understand it, a, a bus service operates very close to the time of the report of the fire. Uh, maybe somebody seen something suspicious, or individuals, or an individual in close proximity. Mm. Anything at all to be reported to the Gardaí. The Gardaí are actually interested in trying to understand the the events that led up to the fire. Uh, someone could tell me maybe it was an accident. Mm. Well, that'll be determined. But if somebody seen okay. something that morning, there was a bus going through the area heading for Dublin, Maybe they've seen something, uh, maybe they want to report it, maybe they think it's nothing, but this is a matter that the guards need assistance with. Yeah, and you don't necessarily have to go to the guards if you don't wish to. Yeah. You can contact Paul Bell. They contact, contact me, they contact the owners of the property. Or somebody else uh, that you trust, yeah, as yeah. the case may be. All right, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank Thanks you, for coming in to us uh, this morning, Labour Party Councillor Paul Bell. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, there's a, a lot of concern uh, about a game called uh, the Momo Challenge, uh, which, hard as it is uh, to believe, actually encourages uh, children to self-harm. They download, d- download uh, one of uh, these images. It's an animated woman uh, who asks them to complete a number of challenges, uh, and at some stage then it's reported uh, that the children are encouraged to to self-harm. Police in Northern Ireland have issued a warning about this, saying that the game conceals itself within other harmless-looking games that are being played by children. CyberSafe Ireland has appealed to parents to monitor their children's activity online uh, to prevent them from coming into the danger that the internet can pose in so many ways. Cleena Curley is Programming Director with CyberSafe Ireland and she's on the line. Good morning to you, Cleena, and uh, thanks for joining us here on the programme this morning. And the advice you're giving is in general terms to parents uh, because there's a, a lot to be concerned about. Yes, I mean, absolutely. There, there, is, uh, there are lots of risks of, of children accessing, you know, all sorts of harmful content online. Um, you know, and we would warn parents generally about these. Um, you know, I mean, I'm not going to discuss this, this particular challenge. There's mm. been a lot of reporting on it. We haven't come across it. Uh, you know, kids, um, you know... Uh, I suppose taking part in this challenge or, or game, um, you know, in schools, um, it's one of these things. There is a there is a similar one called the Blue Whale Challenge um, that uh, w- was reported on widely as well. And to be honest, these things can grow legs, um, you know, once once people start talking about them. Um, so I'm sure kids are aware of of things like this. There are lots of challenges online that kids take part in. Um, and some of them are harmful, um, and there's lots of harmful uh, uh, material that they can access. So the message, I suppose, that we really want to get out there is that, um, you know, parents just need to be engaged in what their kids are doing online and and making Mm. sure that they're having the conversations. All right, and uh, reports in relation to that game of young people uh, dying as a a result of fulfilling these challenges, uh, and it it is extremely serious. uh, But uh, I suppose uh, it it proves that there are uh, some very uh, 
strange people uh, who would go to such lengths uh, to damage other people and young children. It's very hard to to believe that that is the case. But uh, as you say, this is not a, a game that should be looked at in isolation. No, well, I mean, we, as I said, we haven't seen evidence of, of this. And, and, you know, we're in um, primary schools all the time where, where the uh, Irish Children's Charity for Online Safety. But um, we haven't seen kids kids engaging with this specifically. Um, we, we are certainly, you know, aware of it. But the, there are lots of things, you know, where, where kids are online, where kids are persuaded to do things. So, like, one uh, one example would be, you know, this trend of, of kids uh, eating, um, uh, you know, washing up uh, tablets, you know, the, the, the laundry tablets, um, you know, and this was something that was encouraged online in certain kind of games and challenges. Really? Um, you know, kids <laughs> are exposed to extraordinary amounts online and, um, mm. you know, what we really need to, because they have access at such an early age. Mm. Um, you know, we find 8 to 13-year-olds um, you know, about 70% of them are on social media and a similar amount have, have smartphones already. Um, what's really important is, you know, there's loads of good stuff that they're getting uh, from the internet, but we need to remember as well, it's not a safe environment to leave them unsupervised in. Um, so it's great. It's great when they're getting certain levels of access, mm. but but really important the parents are involved in that. Uh, and that was you know, a trend, was it, Lena? Yeah, absolutely. Mm. I've seen <laughs> lots of things like that. I mean, usually among uh, older kids, um, you know, these things can go viral and mm. um, they're more concepts than anything. Um, but that would make you very is, sick, would it not? Sorry? It would make you very sick, would it not? Oh, hugely, yeah, they're hugely toxic. Mm. Um, but there, there are all sorts of things, but there's also loads, and I mean, in, in terms of this one specifically, you know, it's talking about self-harming. Mm. There's lots of self-harming content that is available on social media and that is available, you know, through a quick Google search for kids. So, you know, really, I, I think there's a little bit of a danger of focusing on one particular game or one particular challenge, mm. when in reality, the environments that kids are already using, you know, the, the Snapchat and, and uh, Instagram and, um, you know, Roblox and Fortnite, all these environments that the kids are on, kids will be exposed uh, potentially to harmful content and to harmful contact. And that's really what parents need to focus on. Mm. You know, look at what their own kids are doing, have lots of conversations with them, keep an eye on things, um, you know, keep ears open as well in terms of the conversations they're having and who they're talking to. And try and talk to them as often as possible about what's smart and what's not smart to do online. Mm. And, you know, there's great resources out there for parents. I know it can be very overwhelming, but have a look on our website, cybersafearing.org, uh, webwise.ie, it, it, you know, is another good one. Um, you know, and, and check out, um, you know, because there's good advice there on, on really conversations to be having, safeguards that you can use with particular games and apps. Mm. Um, and, you know, what rules are good to, to, to put in place. Um, and to remember as well, there is lots of good on the internet. It's just not leaving kids to it. But whilst there's so much good on the internet, uh, as you say, are you also saying that it's almost inevitable that all children at some stage will be exposed to harmful content? Um, I mean, I don't. I, it's not necessarily inevitable. It depends really on their their the, the type of things that they're they're doing online. Mm. Um, you know, there will be some kids who love technology, but they love coding, and they're not really you know interested in social media or or, or gaming or anything like that. Um, and so they they'd be less likely to be. Um, but you know, I think I think the reality is, um, you know, there is a fair chance that at some point, you know, whether it's when they're kids or, or a bit later on. Um, that, that they will be exposed to something. So it's so important that they feel that they can come and talk to parents. So the more you're having conversations with them early on 
And, you know, the more you're kind of coaching them on what is smart behavior and positive behavior and healthy behavior in terms of using technology, the more likely it is that they'll feel they can come to you if they do come across something that's not okay. And that's really, really important. Mm, All right. We'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Cleena Curley, Programming Director with CyberSafe Ireland. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns uh, joins us with some of uh, the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael, and to everybody listening in. John and Navin phoned in and first of all wanted to point out that he is in fact a former member of Fianna Fáil and you needn't say that he's a Sinn Féin member because he isn't, Michael. And he says that just listening to the interview with Shane Castles at the top of the programme and feels that maybe his performance and the performance of the Taoiseach is why Fianna Fáil is behind... No, not the performance of the Taoiseach, the performance of Michal Martin at the Ardesh, the performance of the party leader, is why Fianna Fáil is behind Fine Gael in the polls and why he doesn't believe that Fianna Fáil will win a general election. He says that Deputy Cassis was like the football manager firing up the players before going out on a field and feels that Fianna Fáil are not ready for public office just yet. He feels that their Ardesh was a dismal failure and this is coming from a former Fianna Fáil member, Michael. I'm reflecting what a lot of Fianna Fáil people are thinking. We do not accept that Brexit is the reason for reluctance to go to the country. It's because Fine Gael are so far ahead in the polls despite all the different scandals. Well, we are about a month out from Brexit and I think uh, most people would prefer the uh, idea of delaying uh, the prospect of a a general election. I mean, we could be facing into uh, an exceptional crisis uh, and not a time for a general election. But uh, come the 29th of March, uh, we might be talking about another six months, another 12 months, or as the reports are today, another 21 months. So this is uh, not exactly D-Day yet. Aidan from Kells, can we take it then if Article 50 is extended and Brexit is delayed that Fianna Fáil will pull the plug straight away, Michael, and force a general election because that is what Micheál Martin and Shane Castles on your programme today seem to be saying that they're just waiting mm. for Brexit to be sorted and then they'll go to the polls. Well, I'm not sure that I heard either of them say it. I've heard a lot of Fianna Fáil people say, look, the 29th of March, uh, the world changes and uh, the rules change in line with that. Uh, but uh, we have also heard uh, that there's uh, a confidence and supply agreement in place to deliver the next budget. Fianna Fáil is committed to that and Micheál Martin has said he'll fulfil that commitment. Shane Castles this morning saying uh, not till the spring of next year. Fianna Fáil's an absolute disgrace, says a texter and a joke of a party. They may as well get themselves blue ties at this stage. They don't like how the government is operating, yet they allow it to continue as they abstain from every no-confidence vote. Hypocrisy of the highest order. They've no respect for their electorate whatsoever. They don't want an election as they know they will be destroyed come election day. And that comes in from a texter, no name. All right, let's uh, hold that thought for a moment and uh, talk uh, about uh, some of uh, the rubbish that's been illegally dumped around uh, the border area. Anton Waters is a Sinn Féin councillor. He's on the line. Good morning to you and thanks for joining us. Uh, a lot of the illegal dumping uh, is done by people from the other side of the border going both north and south. 
correct, Michael. Good morning. Good morning How are you? you. And thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, you're very correct in what you say. A lot of the dumping is uh, done by perpetrators on both sides of the border, um, even overnight. Um, there's been another case of tyre dumping in the Eden Tubber and Flagstaff area in the south and even in the north at Victoria Lock mm. along the Newry Road. Um, there's been quite a significant amount of tyres dumped. Um, even the case on the Flagstaff Road, the Ferry Hill Road, um, the tyres are just dumped the whole length of the road from the top of the viewpoint down to the bottom where it meets the Omeet Road. Mm. So it's it's just, it's nearly back as bad as it was before. Really? So, yeah. Mm, mm. And there's a, a significant cost to, to cleaning up after that. Of course, yeah, of course. And uh, Loud County Council staff and on the other side, Newry Morning Down staff mm. have been putting a lot of effort and work into collecting tyres. Um, over the weekend, there was a big uh, haul of tyres got between Silverbridge and Cross McGlen, a colleague of mine, Terry Herty, it reported up to a thousand tyres dumped on a wee small country road. So My it is a problem that mm-hmm. needs to be addressed and hence the reason why myself and Councillor Mickey Larkin um, proposed um, the cross-border anti-dumping project which looks at um, cooperation between Newry Morn and Down and Loud County Council to use the resources in a joint operation to try and reduce this dumping in the area. All right, uh, because uh, people from the north dumping here and people from the south dumping there uh, and uh, then it's being cleaned up at a, a cost. So the two local authorities coming together to try and tackle this. How so? Exactly. So what, what's going to happen now is last, uh, last Wednesday... Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Um, it was proposed at our joint meeting with the two councils that they'd put in place an action plan. So basically what the action plan is going to do is it's going to look at joint clean-up operations, awareness campaigns such as social media and the local print and radio. They're also going to look at sharing GDPR information. So it's very important that if mm. they know a known perpetrator and it's in a certain area, that both, both councils know who they are and they can look at um, monitoring them and seeing what actions they're doing. So they're also going to look at... Um, joint surveillance operations that's leading into that and then also they're going to look at smart enforcement technologies with the use of like covert CCTV cameras and the likes of that so mm. it's a very welcome step and um, I was on with you last January after mm-hmm. one of the big uh, tyre dumpings in the Eden Tubber area so yep. at least we have something now in place 
that we can look to get results from and try and reduce this this menace in our society along the border, you know. Mm, and, I mean, when you talk about these incidents, we're not talking about somebody dumping uh, their spare, as the case may be. This is organised. Uh, and uh, undoubtedly, that's why intelligence will feed into tackling it and uh, the sharing of information will lead to increased intelligence and hopefully uh, the man with the ban or whoever it is uh, that is organising this type of activity uh, can be identified and uh, brought to book. Exactly, yeah. I think um, like the sharing of information and, and the local knowledge from the letter wardens on both sides is going to play a key role in this because at the end of the day, there's a lot of dumping that's done just on the border so it could come from either side. So if, if all the officials are singing off the same hymn sheet and they're, they're sharing the information, it's, it's the best way and the best approach to try and tackle it. So mm. it really is a very welcome move and I do look forward to the next couple of months where we can maybe see the rewards of this project and try and, like, we live in a beautiful area, as I always say to you, mm. um, we don't like seeing these uh, dumping incidents. It's not just tyres. Like, we have a lot of rubbish and household mm. waste. So it's all about tackling and sharing disinformation to try and get rid of this scourge. And that is the irony of it, isn't it, uh, in that uh, the more scenic, the more likely it is uh, to be an isolated area and that leads uh, to people coming in and uh, disposing of their rubbish, but it also makes it difficult to police. Exactly, exactly. Like a lot of the areas that uh, the dumping occurs in are very remote and very scenic and like it's very hard to police all these wee roads. So that's where like the local knowledge, as I said, and even members of the public will pay a key role in it as well because they're going to be able to help provide any information they would have or any strange activity that they can report to letter wardens on either side of the of the border and then again that's going to help to tackle it so it really is it really is a, a boost to to try and mm. to tackle the illegal dumping and i really can't talk enough about it because it's such a great move you know okay well hopefully uh, there will be a, a positive uh, result uh, from uh, the initiative and uh, thanks for telling us about it this morning anton waters Sinn fein loud county councillor now let's go back uh, to more of your comments uh, what else have you got for yes, us there Michael, going back to the the interview at the top of the programme just regarding Fianna Fáil mm. from Colm the Fianna Fáil rep you had on at the start of the show said that Micheál Martin gave a state man speech at the end of their party conference last Saturday I think this statement is either a wind up or he's having a laugh Fianna Fáil are just puppets for the Fine Gael party there is still plenty of us about who can remember 10 years ago when the Fianna Fáil government put a republic on its knees Margaret rang in to say it's very easy to have a go at Fianna in a fall uh, and saying that they should be having an election but Michael who really wants an election mm. first of all nobody would give them any thanks having an election mm. with four weeks to go to Brexit mm. and also even after that when you look at the opinion polls would the result be any different no. it would only mm. be a waste of time yeah. says Margaret mm. No well I think there's a, a lot of truth in that and I certainly wouldn't want an election I think the question for Fianna Fall is what are you on about like because they're saying like this is a, a terrible government they're in office because mm. we're facilitating that position yes. and they're terrible and that just doesn't make sense to most people I think. And that's probably mm. what's mm. prompting so many yeah. people to get in touch because mm. Matthew Madrada says I'm fed up listening to Fianna Fáil go on about responsibility and accountability blah 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 we are still paying back and our children's children will be for years for their responsibility and accountability only a few short years ago fooling nobody another listener Fran Fianna Fáil party shooting down the blue shorts and agreeing with them at the same time who in God's name is going to vote for Fianna Fáil tell the party to wake up
Mm. Well, 22%, uh, I think, uh, yes. according to Sunday's poll, uh, but that is far from uh, the glory days. And uh, it was back in the glory days, I suppose, uh, that Fianna Fáil took up office that saw oversaw the crash in, in 2008. Uh, but it has to be said that whilst it was a, a Fianna Fáil government at the time, uh, the opposition party, the main opposition party, Fine Gael, were its greatest cheerleaders. Just moving from that uh, for the moment to go to the Thatch fire with one or two comments there. Uh, Texter says, give me a break, Michael. How much has been spent on the Thatch pub and Harty's Cottage? A waste of money. Let the people mm. who own these buildings look after them. Don't knock on my door, knock on theirs. OK, yeah, that's a, a fair comment. Uh, I think uh, a lot of uh, public money and around 100,000, I think, uh, between uh, the two buildings. Uh, but it, it still doesn't justify or explain the mentality of whoever deliberately set out to destroy it. And finally, John from Drogheda says that he rang in this morning very annoyed and he says the reason is because of what's going on in the town of Drogheda and he wonders where the Gardaí are in all of this and he's saying he's not just talking about the feud that's going on but there just seems to be an awful lot of Mm. criminal activity, vandalism, attacks, that type of thing and it's not giving us a good name. Yeah, it's a a rough image if nothing else, whether the reality is uh, as bad as the image. There's no doubt he's right. There is a rough image of what's going in Drogheda these days. Uh, But we'll leave it there for the moment, make that the final word for the moment and come back perhaps to some more comments a little bit later on today. In the meanwhile, if you'd like to add to what's being said, you can ring Marie or Maggie, who are both taking calls now. And our telephone number is 1850 Michael Reed on LMFM. Let's talk about living in an ideal world, if it's even possible to live in an ideal world or how that may be brought about. Uh, The United Nations has global goals for sustainable development, which may help the world to be better, if not ideal. And there are 17 such goals. No poverty, zero hunger, good health and well-being, quality education, gender equality, clean water and sanitation, affordable and clean energy, decent work and economic growth, industry, innovation and infrastructure, reduced inequality, sustainable cities and communities, responsible consumption and production, climate change, life below water, life on land, peace, justice and strong institutions and partnerships for the goals. And last week, Social Justice Ireland published its third report on how Ireland is meeting those goals. We're joined now by Father Sean Healy, Director of Social Justice Ireland and a very good morning to you and thank you for joining us. As I say, there's a, a lot of categories there, 17 of them in all, and we fare better, I, I think, in our efforts uh, to improve life for people in this country in some of those categories than we do in others. We certainly do. Uh, we do. We, when What we did was we, we looked at what Ireland was doing. We uh, got a series of indicators that were uh, applicable across all 15 countries in the EU 15 which is kind of the Western European countries uh, and the Nordics and so on. And uh, then what we did was we, we sort of ranked those uh, countries compared to each other and how they were doing on each of the goals. And he, then on also uh, looked at them specifically. So in the ones that we were doing really well on, uh, we were in the, say we were in the top third 
the, the first one is education. We're, we're ranked second in all of the European, across all the, uh, the 15 countries on, on education. Now, we, we still have a weakness on uh, the, those who are not in employment or education or training, needs as they're called, and we, we still have a weakness on that. But um, compared to other countries, we're doing very well on that. We're likewise, we're doing well on, on, on peace and justice, which is the kind of strong institutions to, to, to promote um, uh, justice across the world. And we're doing pretty okay. We're still at least we're in the top third on clean water and sanitation. But then when you look more closely, you find us, uh, that's three in the top third, but we mm. actually have four in the bottom third. And uh, so we're we're kind of from 11 to 15th, we're ranked on reduced inequalities, for example. So um, we we're not good on the on the inequalities generally, um, and they they have been going backwards a bit. Um, Likewise, in partnership with the goals, as they're called, that's mm. for the implementation of the goals, that's basically measured by our contribution on third world aid. And um, we we haven't been making uh, the same kinds of level of, ga- of gains on that compared to other countries. So uh, we're actually quite poor on that. And we're for, uh, affordable and clean energy is one that we're not. We're ranked 12th out of 15. And the worst of all is responsible consumption and production, uh, which is goal 12, but we're ranked 14th out of 15 on responsible consumption and production. And that's that's kind of uh, a serious disappointment, if you like, mm. because it's basically doing things like our, our asking questions about our energy consumption, our waste generation and management, and our capacity for decoupling environmental impacts from economic growth. So we haven't done anything of substance in in any of those compared to uh, what the other countries are doing. So we're ranked 14th out of 15. Uh, and how, so, how is it measured? Uh, the report was written for you by Professor Charles M.A. Clark of St. John's University in New York and Dr. Catherine Kafner of UCC. But how do they set a, a, about measuring progress? What they do did is they have over... 65, 70 indicators that they have identified from the list uh, that the United Nations itself has delivered and that the Eurostat has delivered for Europe. Not all the measures uh, that are devised by the United Nations would be applicable uh, to countries developed countries like Ireland, for example, there would be ones that would be more applicable to poor countries in Africa or in Asia or uh, South America. But So therefore, we don't, call, we don't use those. There isn't much point. Uh, but what we can do is we can use uh, su- uh, duplicate or substitute, in fact, mm. uh, indicators that are agreed by the European, uh, at the European Union level and apply those. Now, we apply them. Uh, what we have is, the, as I say, up 60-plus indicators, and we have the, the, we're able to get the data for all of those from sources like the Eurostat and the United Nations and the OECD and various other places, official uh, measure, measuring agencies, mm-hmm. if you like. And then uh, we're able to compare and contrast. We put them all together. And what you find, we, we, put, we put them up then, we put them together in three subgroups. There's any con- uh, goals that are principally focused on the economy, goals that are f- uh, focused on society and goals that are focused on the environment. And what we find there is that, uh, again, we're not doing all that well mm. um, in the sense that of the 
uh, of the of, of, of the economic ones we're doing we're 11th out of 15 on the social ones we're 10th out of 15 and on the environmental ones we're 13th out of 15 and on average we're 11th out of 15 that is correct overall when you mm. put it all together we're ranked in the bottom third we're 11th out of 15 interestingly enough we were 11th last year as mm. well uh, and that's kind of a sign that maybe we're not doing what's required to improve our situation. We're not doing what's required uh, to sort of go up that ranking mm. because we, we certainly, I don't think most pe- Irish people want to be ranked in the bottom third, particularly uh, mm. on environment. Well, is it not as good as can be expected? Uh, the countries that come after us, Portugal, Italy, Spain, Greece, uh, you could argue that we did well uh, to rate better than those countries. Uh, countries like Luxembourg, France, Belgium, United Kingdom, Germany, Australia, Netherlands, Finland, Denmark and Sweden uh, come in front of us. Uh, Sweden uh, getting the overall best ranking. That's right. Um, well, I, I think most Irish people would feel that given that we're one of the richest countries in the world, that it's not good enough to have the level of poverty we have, the level of uh, inequality mm. that we have, the failure to deal with the gender pay gap, for example, uh, the, fa- the failure to tackle housing issues. There's so many things that we're, we're kind of not really getting to grips with, despite the fact that we're a wealthy country. Mm. And uh, that's not an accident. That's a set of decisions we've made not to focus on these things at the level that's required um, and not to put in the investment mm. that's required. Uh, and as a result, we are not doing all that well. I think most Irish people would feel that we should be in the top third across the system. And hardly surprising, though, that the three Scandinavian countries are in the top three. But that's interesting because it's, uh, what they have in, in common and what makes uh, marks them out as different from everybody else is that they have made a decision and they made it before the Sustainable Development Goals were agreed by the UN. They made a decision to build a society um, that had good infrastructure, that had good services, uh, that was good for the economy, but also that had fair taxation and, and good participation and, and sustainability in terms of its core values and its core policy focus. And what they did then was they took a, they take a much higher percentage of their national income as in tax. Now, not all from income tax, uh, but they, they, they compared to, to Ireland, they would take a lot more in other areas of tax than we do. And what they've done is they have used that money very effectively uh, to deliver infrastructure, to deliver services, um, to, and, and, and to, to, to substantially reduce uh, these other uh, issues that are being measured here. And it's quite interesting that if it, 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 what it proves, of course, is that if you want to sort of perform well in infrastructure and in uh, like social housing and public mm. transport, or if you want to do well in, in services like health and education, you have to, or if you want to deliver something like rural broadband, which is a huge issue in Ireland, um, what we, you have to do is you have to put the investment in. To get the investment, you have to uh, at least uh, increase the, kind of the tax take. You, now, we're not advocating that we go to the Scandinavian levels of, t- of total tax take, but we are saying that Ireland needs to take us a, a bit more in taxation, not in increasing income tax, but in other areas. Mm-hmm. And we have spelt those out. We've talked about them previously in this, on this program with yourself. But the interesting thing in that is if we're not really going to get our infrastructure and services and so on up to the Scandinavian levels or close to them if we continue and persist with United States levels of taxation, which are very low right, in yeah, the but, overall scheme of things. But, but, but there is a, a different distribution of wealth in these countries as well. And that wouldn't be very popular with uh, some people in this country. 
That's true, but sometimes uh, people in this country uh, think about it. They, they don't think that much about it. And what they, they feel that, that we should be able to deliver European levels of service with American levels of taxation. And that's never going to happen. And uh, I think most Irish people would want our services and our infrastructure to be at the level that they see across Western Europe when mm. they the holiday there or visit it for one reason or another. And that's what that's the kind of level that Irish people want to see their, their country performing. Well, at. they might want it, but they don't want to pay for it. Well, you see, the issue, therefore, is, is that people have to kind of think their way through this because you can't have the, the level of infrastructure. You can't have the level of, of public transport and, uh, and, and social housing and affordable housing. You can't have uh, good education and, 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 and health care at the levels that other Europeans have. You can't have all of those. You might have one, but you won't have them all uh, without uh, uh, increasing our, 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 our total tax take and moving a bit closer uh, to, to, to a European model. You can't sort of do one while not doing the other. You can't expect to deliver the services and the infrastructure without having some money to put into it. Uh, th- this thing does not happen by spontaneous combustion. It's basically a decision that we're making as a society. Do we really want to have a better society, uh, a sort of where the services are mm. good and the infrastructure is good and rural broadband is addressed and we have the, the, the housing that we require and the and that enough housing, and that we have uh, at a price that people can pay, and that we actually also uh, have the public transport systems that are required, that we have the, the healthcare systems that, that sort of eliminate the two-tier system so that you can actually get access to healthcare when you need it and not mm-hmm. because not depend on whether or not you have the money to pay for it at a particular time. But some people would say that you're arguing for extreme inequality and that that inequality would be brought about by some people going out and working very hard to pay for other people's services. But I think it's it's more uh, it's, it's, that's not really the way we're doing it. What we've done in a society like most people, Irish people uh, uh, in the labour force actually have jobs. The problem we have is we have a very high level of precarious jobs or low paid jobs when you put them together. And as a result, uh, we have then devised a welfare system uh, and a tax system, um, that uh, an income tax system, that um, redistributes uh, very effectively. So, without, for example, uh, if there wasn't a welfare system, something like 44% of all Irish people would actually be living in poverty. Mm. But that's down to 157 15.8, um, uh, because of the fact that we have a very... Uh, solid targeted welfare system. However, the problem we we face in the longer term is that if we need to get behind the, the the problem that we're addressing with our welfare system, we should have a situation in which there are well-paid jobs. At the end of the day, it's not good enough to say a job is the best poverty fighter and believe that any kind of a job will work. It won't because we have a situation where 5% of all the people who are actually working, have a job today, are actually living in poverty. That's 109,000 people in Ireland have a job, but they're actually living in poverty. Mm. Now, that's not good enough. And a lot of that is due to the fact that they have low-paid jobs, and there's a lot of people just above them. Uh, who aren't in the poverty below the poverty line, but they're not far above it, and that's not good enough. We have a situation in which we we should be moving our uh, our society towards uh, a model where there is good, well-paid jobs for everybody who wants them, and 
move ourselves towards a situation where that's the kind of employment that we work for. I give a question, mm-hmm. for example, that we need to address right now mm-hmm. and, and in the next few years is we're driving job creation. We're, we're doing a great uh, focus on bringing in transnationals and like we had a recent announcement in Dublin that 1,500 jobs would be de- delivered um, in, 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 in one of the big big companies and um, the, the issue with that of course is that those 1500 people maybe half of them are going to come in from abroad because Ireland is close enough to full employment um, and we don't have the skills anyway among the unemployed to, to actually take up those jobs so what happens we get 750 800 people come in they are they have well-paid jobs they're going to actually um, take up accommodation that accommodation that's accommodation that's already occupied uh, by, by by people and yet uh, they're going to be driven out of there because these guys are going to be able to pay more for it and eventually you're going to wind up with another 800 people looking for social housing in a situation uh, where there aren't social houses being generated we need to think in terms of uh, putting all and that's one of the things that this study shows very strongly you need to have policy coherence what you're doing on your sort of growth policy and economic growth should be consistent with what you're trying to do in terms of delivering services and infrastructure and should be consistent with what you're doing with sustainability, whether that's economic sustainability or social sustainability or environmental sustainability, all of which are critically important. And I think that the challenge for the for governments in the, in the next number of years is to have policy coherence so that they're not, if you like, giving a huge amount of money away on, on tax cuts and at the same time leaving us then with infrastructure and, 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 and services that are way below what people actually want. Very good. We have to leave it there for the moment though. Thank you as always Father Sean Healy, Director of Social Justice Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. Focus on Brexit moves uh, to Egypt where European leaders are meeting uh, with uh, the EU Arab League summit at Sharm el-Sheikh. Mrs May has almost given up uh, the fight, it would seem, uh, because uh, there's no prospect, uh, she feels, uh, at this stage of coming back with new proposals to the House of Commons until at least the 12th of March when she's saying there will be be a meaningful vote. Let's talk about where we're at with this with Matt Carthy, Sinn Féin, MEP for the Midlands North West. Good morning to you and thanks uh, for joining us as always. Uh, it seems as uh, though uh, we've uh, come run into a, a brick wall. Yeah, and for week um, past and another week closer to the Brexit deadline, Michael, and confusion continues to reign, uh, particularly in relation to the British government's approach. This is have known since last September 12 months that the issue pertaining to the so-called backstop, the issue pertaining to the Irish border, um, would need to be addressed. And even at this point, for all the discussion around renegotiation and rediscussion around the the elements of that backstop, the British government yet to provide a single alternative or a single proposal in relation to how they square the circle whereby they say they don't want to see any hardening of the Irish border but at the same time want to remove the North of Ireland Customs Union and the reason of course is we know that that's squared unless there are specific special arrangements put in place um, to protect the whole Ireland economy the Good Friday Agreement and all the outworkings of those things so mm. yes it appears that the British government's position now is to um, play this down to the wire 
Um, it's a very dangerous strategy, I have to say, and I'm sure it's very concerning for lots of people involved in business and community development and anybody who has a concern for the Good Friday Agreement and the Irish peace process. Okay, but uh, maybe there's nothing to talk about because on Wednesday uh, the Commons will vote on Bet Cooper's uh, motion which would give MPs the ability to extend Article 50. This appears to have uh, the support of senior ministers Amber Rudd, Greg Clark and David Gawk and the expectation from some at least is that this will be uh, a departure in 2021 pushed out for 21 months. Well first of all the, and this I suppose goes to the heart of the British approach to all of these things um, the House of Commons doesn't get unilaterally on an extension to Article 50. That has to be agreed with European negotiators. And to my mind, it's difficult to see the EU agreeing to uh, an extension of Article 50 unless there is some clear framework as to what that extension will be used to achieve. Because Mm. you have to remember, in the event that there is an extension to Article 50 beyond the 1st of July, that means that the new um, the new structures are put in place. So that means that for that period of extension, the British continue to have representation in the European Parliament. They also continue to have the right to nominate a commissioner and they also have um, a membership of the European mm. Council, which gives them control over um, a number of policy areas. I, I, I thought that actually the United Kingdom had it within their gift to unilaterally decide to extinguish, if not postpone or delay, Article 50. There's, they can withdraw Article 50, um, according to the European Court of Justice's mm. ruling. But even in that context, the ECJ said that it would need to be based on a democratic framework. So in other words, it couldn't be used as a mechanism to withdraw Article 50 with the intention of reinstating it at some undefined point in the future. That's different than an extension of Article 50, which would require an agreement on the part of both sides, because EU law um, and Article 50 itself is explicit that the time frame that is in place. So the default position at the moment is, unless there is an alternative agreement or if the current withdrawal agreement um, is um, acceded to by the British Parliament, or unless there is an agreed position by both the EU and British um, sides that there will be a defined time frame in relation to an extension, well, then the, mm. the default position is a no-deal scenario. And we've known, because we've been speaking about this for the past number mm. mm. years, Satan consequences that have but even in the in the context because I think the Irish position instinctively is yes let's play for time let's uh, let's support an extension I think Irish representatives would be very um, um, prone to supporting a proposal for an extension at the same time it would be better if such extension taken place in the framework of a clear idea of what that extension is going to use because while Absolutely, uh, a no-deal scenario, if it can be pushed out for a year, okay, but it would be better if we weren't faced with the prospect of a no-deal scenario at all, because one of the complications in all of this, of course, is the uncertainty that has presented, was speaking to representatives of the Irish road hauliers last week. They operate on the basis for their signing contracts for six months or 12 months um, in, in advance. They're in a difficult position now, agreeing um, contracts for six weeks in advance of them because, as we know, they operate on an all-out basis and the huge bulk of their transport either goes to Britain or through Britain and that um, creates uncertainty. So at the European Parliament, we're dealing with a file yeah, but to it, it, ensure that it, there is some 
cushion in place, but even that is wrought with difficulties. So all of mm. is it your sense though that Europe is going to say no that they uh, won't agree to an extension? No, it's not my sense that that's the case. But what my, the point I'm trying to make is that it's not going to be enough for the British government just to say, okay, we want an extension either mm. for three months, six months, a year or two years, without having some basis as to what that extension Maybe is so, but they, but they probably get it anyway, won't they? I think the most likely scenario is that yes, but again, mm. in the event that this is simply a matter of kicking the can down the road, so for an Irish point of view, it's quite clear, we want mm. to avoid a no-deal scenario through whatever mechanisms are, um, are there, and that would probably include um, tacit support for an extension. But for a lot of EU member states and some powerful people within the European institutions who just want to get on with things. They've accepted that Brexit is now um, a, a real and live um, um, live prospect and want to go beyond Brexit mm. for good and bad reasons, I have to say, but that's a debate for another day. Um, and in the event the British government simply come and ask for an extension of time, especially beyond the 1st of July, mm. without having any um, specific proposals in terms of what that extension is going to be used for. My fear would be that unanimity at an EU level might not be as common as I think some British politicians just assume. And of course, for all of that, that means that the uncertainty from Irish point of view remains in place, and therefore the work that we have been doing in terms of putting in place contingency arrangements. Mm. Well, there has to be unanimity, doesn't there? Everybody has to agree if there is to be an extension. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, so, so, are you of the belief that uh, it will be denied? No, no, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that if, in the event that mm. the British government make that proposal, it will need to have a firm grounding in reality in terms of what's achievable during. Okay, but if it's just a request for time, do you believe it'll be denied? I think they could get a rude awakening, and as I say, um, I know the Irish government are on record saying that they will be supportive of any delay in Article 50. There will be some people who believe the longer this is pushed out, the more likely it is there will be a second referendum in Britain. Mm. But the truth of the matter is, looking at the Commons in the current framework, that in the absence of a British government saying that either there would be a there there would be a, a general election, a second referendum or a clearly defined majority position in the current House of Commons for a um, particular set of proposals, well, then people would understandably ask, well, what is this extension for? Yeah, OK. Well, sometimes time uh, is uh, uh, enough of a reason. Uh, we're running out of time, obviously, uh, and uh, time will tell uh, what will happen. Uh, we've uh, a number of uh, important things beginning with that vote on Wednesday over the course of uh, the next couple of weeks. But we leave it there for the moment. Thanks, as always, for joining us this morning. Sinn Féin MEP Matt Carthy. Michael Reed on LMFM. This is Eating Disorders Awareness Week. Body Wise is uh, the Eating Disorders Association of Ireland. It's reaching out this week uh, to family members of uh, people who have an eating disorder and tells us uh, that it has supported 600 such people in recent times. Barry Murphy, Communications Officer with Body Wise on the line. Good morning to you and uh, thanks uh, for joining us here on the programme this morning. This is undoubtedly uh, a very serious problem when somebody develops an eating disorder, but it impacts everybody in the family, you say? Yes, uh, without doubt. Um, You know, I think anyone who's been through an eating disorder 
or even family as well will tell you it, it turns their their life upside down completely and um, just such a change in the person not just in terms of behaviors around food or kind of weight or kind of maybe how they are in general but it really just affects their thinking um their state of mind and you know they can develop issues like osteoporosis uh, damage to a person's heart uh, damage to a person's teeth as well those kind of are some mm. of the kind of consequences of an eating disorder but it is their mind that's driving it isn't it whilst uh, it is uh, the body that pays the price uh, as such uh, it's a, a psychologically driven uh, disorder very much so. So it, it's internationally recognised, uh, you know, as a, a serious and complex mental illness. Um, that is what, uh, you know, eating disorders are. The food and weight symptoms kind of, uh, you know, are ultimately how the illness manifests itself. But it's kind of what's behind all of that. And it's kind of, you know, that'll, that'll tell, tell its own story, really. Okay, and I suppose most typically we think of young girls uh, who have uh, developed uh, some sort of an eating disorder because of uh, the perception of their own bodies. Yeah, so I suppose there are kind of a couple of different stereotypes there. You know, a lot of the time it is women, okay, um, and sometimes girls too, but men are also affected. And we also see really the full age spectrum um, in terms of people coming forward for help and support so it's not just young people either mm, It's a, a stereotypical vision do you think? Yeah mm. I think it's kind of just you know one of the it's a phase or it's a fad or it's a diet gone wrong um, and you know that can be quite damaging then because a person kind of believes other people believe this stereotype and then they will say well I can't get help because you know I won't be taken seriously because mm. I don't fit the stereotype as such. Yeah, and easier to understand, uh, I suppose, uh, because it is uh, very complicated, as you say, and very difficult to understand why somebody would starve themselves or whatever the condition is. Uh, but uh, easier to understand if it's a, a, a young woman who's looking at models on the catwalk uh, who uh, don't eat much and are very, very thin. And quite often the pressure that is put on young women has been blamed for these type of disorders. Yeah, so I suppose what we would see, I think, you know, the building blocks of an eating disorder, they would kind of tend to start before a person's relationship with food actually changes. So it may be that there has been some bullying, for instance, and it may not be that it's the first comment. It may be that there are kind of, you know, comments from six months ago that, you know, they did some initial damage, but a person said the person didn't starve themselves as consequences of that but then maybe a more recent comment comes up and, say, and someone said oh you're worthless you're ugly and then, then the person takes that on board and kind of makes the link and says oh well someone also said that a number of months ago um, that must be how I really am and then kind of that has that seed has been planted and then they say well okay maybe food is a way of controlling this and then it can really get out of hand kind of from from there on. Mm. And is it something that can be developed at any age? Yeah, very much. I mean, um, a couple of years ago, we saw a real jump, I suppose, in, in support requests amongst people in their kind of mid-30s uh, right to, into their 50s. So any age of a um, person can develop an eating disorder. 
Okay, and obviously uh, the uh, effect uh, can be uh, detrimental uh, to starve yourself or to um, be bulimic, uh, as uh, the case may be, uh, can have a a very significant impact on somebody's physical well-being. Uh, And is it right to think that that uh, compounds the problem psychologically? Yeah, I suppose people often talk about this idea of, you know, it's a vicious circle kind of, um, another a word that also come up comes up a lot is an idea of control. That's a really big one as well. But I suppose it's kind of what I touched on earlier around kind of osteoporosis and those kind of things. And um, another consequence could, would be, say, women would lose their periods, for instance. So I think one of the problems in eating disorders is kind of the eating disorder, the internal drive around that will that will always want the person to harm themselves more and more. And, you know, kind of without kind of some professional help and guidance, they can really be locked into that vicious cycle as such. And it's that thing that they are harming themselves that must be very difficult, if not impossible, for family members uh, to contemplate, let alone accept. So when they come to you, undoubtedly they're at their wit's end. Without doubt, yeah. Um, I think initially some of the the challenges kind of... families and the person who has the illness they kind of view it through different lenses and they may not be on the same page because the person the family or the parent might be saying like what's going on here well why aren't you eating um why are you going to the bathroom uh what's this stuff i found on under your bed um whereas the person will say no everything is fine there's nothing going on stop mm-hmm. worrying so kind of that's why we have something like our family program then um, kind of try and to give families that support so then eventually I think the person and the family kind of want to be on the same page and kind of support around that is crucial. Uh, and is that trying to understand the disease uh, because uh, logic is out the door at this stage? Understanding is certainly one piece I think it's really for families it's about the coping strategies kind of so things like managing anger managing kind of setbacks and different times a year the whole idea of change is a really tricky one in eating disorders um, very much helping siblings as well Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm sure Uh, and uh, you've uh, been doing this over the last four or five years uh, offering this help to families yeah so we've uh, developed a program a couple of years ago um, and since that time, really, we've we've supported over 600 family members um, in various locations around the country. So it's a free four-week evening program that families can attend. Okay, well, this is uh, the week uh, in which uh, you hope to bring uh, awareness uh, about uh, for people who may have an eating disorder or those who know them or are related to them. Uh, thanks for joining us uh, this morning, Barry. Uh, it's bodywise.ie, uh, the website, uh, if uh, people do want to make contact with you. Yes, indeed, and people can get our our treatment guide is up there. Our booklet for GPs and parents are also up there as well. Very good. Okay, thanks, as I say, Barry, for joining us uh, this morning. Barry Murphy, Communications Officer with BodyWise, brings our programme to its conclusion today. Our time has run out on us once again. Before we go, let me remind you that there'll be a podcast of today's programme available on our website, lmfm.ie. Thanks to Marie Kearns for producing, Maggie McGuire for researching, and Chris Murray in the Control Tower. I'm Michael Godwin, and we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning. That'll be at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. 
the Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie.